morning. My name is Trisha, and today's second Bible reading is taken from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 7. This can be found on page 573 of the Pew Bible, or you can follow on the screen in front of you. Reading from Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord, there they are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tricia. Good morning, my name's John, I'm one of the ministers here, I've been away for a few weeks, not that anyone noticed, but we have been watching online to see what's been happening. Uh, good to see new faces, good to see regular faces, we did uh, miss the church and it is good to be back. Well, keep your Bibles open to Psalm 14, we're going to have a look at this passage, so let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage and what it looks like to be the fool, help us Lord to be amongst the wise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our passage today is one of those passages that is quite hard to hear, but even harder to accept. It sounds so confrontational. If you look at the words, offensive even. And so, what are we to make of this passage? I mean, it's one of those passages where if you want the honest truth from God, what God thinks about humanity, what God thinks about us, what God sees in our own hearts. This is the honest truth. This is it. I mean, that's what we want in life, isn't it? We always want to hear the truth. We don't want platitudes or, or anything else. We, we actually want the honest truth, even though sometimes it is really hard to hear it. Most Sundays after, after the evening service at night, we as a family with our kids, we would often talk about the passage, talk about the sermon, who's preaching and how, how it went. And I still remember one week last year, one of my kids said, it wasn't me preaching that evening, but one of my kids said, with brutal honesty, no offense, Dad, but so-and-so is a far better preacher than you. Thank you very much. The brutal truth, I agreed, no insecurities whatsoever. But here we have the brutal truth from God about humanity, about us, about this world, about the human heart. And it's why this passage is one of those passages, why our world does not like the Bible, hates the Bible. I mean, I don't want to be told anything from this passage, that I'm a, a sinner, that I'm evil, I'm wrong. But you see, the Bible doesn't beat around the bush it calls a spade a spade. It doesn't patronize like Disney movies. You know, just follow your heart. And 
You can be whatever you want to be. I mean, that's a joke. It's a lie. I mean, I want to be an astronaut, but that, there's no way that's going to happen. But you see, the Bible here is with brutal honesty, honest truth. It speaks of folly, of sin, of wickedness, of human depravity, of corruption, and all from within the human heart. So if you do follow your heart like Disney, it's not going to lead anywhere good. This is the honest truth, the brutal truth. And unless, you see, we understand what we see in this passage, we will fail to see the glory, the beauty, and the brilliance of who Jesus Christ is and why the world desperately needs to know him. And so let's have a look. Verse 1. The heart of the fool. Verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now in the Bible, the fool is not one who is a dimwit. It's not one who is intellectually challenged or with a low IQ. It's not about the mind. In fact, the fool is one who in his heart, that is, in my inmost being, in the core of my very person, in my deeply held convictions, in the prism through which I see the world, he says, even with all the evidence in creation, in Scripture, in the Bible, the witnesses of Christians, even in my own conscience, from all the evidence, from even that sense of eternity that is upon my heart, I'm not seeing it. I'm not agreeing to it. I don't want it to be true. And I'm still saying there is no God. You see, this fool is one who does not just say this intellectually as a theoretical atheist. You see, the reality is that there aren't that many consistent atheists. There certainly are, but most are not consistent atheists. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, a consistent atheist cannot claim that Nazi Germany, what they did in the Holocaust, was wicked or evil. There's no groundings to call it wicked or evil, no category to call that if you are a consistent atheist. Because if you're a consistent atheist, what was it? It was the survival of the fittest. A stronger race killing off a weaker race. What's wrong with it if we're just like the animals? You see, if you're consistent, that's what you would say if you're an honest atheist. But most are not. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis. He was trying to be a consistent atheist. But he came to see he had no grounds on which to deny God. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, thinking about morality was one of the things that converted C.S. Lewis. He became a Christian. And so the fool is one who not only says intellectually, you know, there is no God, but the vast majority are not theoretical atheists, they're, they're practical atheists. That is, I live as though there is no God. And it's interesting to note here, in the Hebrew text, the, the word there is, is not there. So it literally reads, 
the fool says in his heart, no God, which means there is no God for me. There is no God who made me, no God to judge me, no God to tell me what is right or wrong. That's a practical atheist. And even so many so-called Christians live their lives as practical atheists, living as though God does not exist. Blaise Pascal, brilliant French mathematician and physician, uh, physicist, in fact, he became a Christian because of the overwhelming evidence for God. He said, Men despise religion, they hate it and are afraid it may be true. Because, you see, if God is true... And that's the fear of so many. That's why so many are practical atheists. I'd rather live as a practical atheist. The fear is that if God is true, I relinquish my control over my own life. You see, it's a matter of not the intellect, but of the heart. And so God is saying, with all due respect from Psalm 14, that is the fool. That's the honest truth. But, but it's worth asking, isn't such a person... Verse 1, just mistaken. He denies God's existence, but isn't he just mistaken? Isn't it a bit too strong of a language to call him a fool? Well, you see, what helped me understand this passage was what the Apostle Paul, how he expounded it in Romans chapter 1. He expanded on, Romans, uh, on Psalm 14. Paul said in Romans 1, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And what are they suppressing? Well, we read on. Since what can be known about God is plain to them, that is what they are suppressing. Because God has made it plain to them. And what is it that God has made plain to all humanity? Well, we read on. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And so, from creation, from our observation of creation, everyone must say, there is a God. And the last part we read, so that men are without excuse. What it's saying is that everyone believes there's a God. We're just practical atheists. We'd rather live as though God does not exist. It's why no one can rock up to God one day and say, well, I didn't know that you existed. God will say, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Do you think the stars came out of nowhere? Do you think the earth orbits around the sun at that precise orbit, that precise distance to sustain life by accident? Do you think humanity is able to achieve such greatness, such beauty, in the arts and music and literature and language and architecture, if I did not create human beings with my creative abilities? If the door, you would have heard recently, the Atlantic Airlines Boeing 737, if that door that fell off required a team, a huge team of engineers and designers to design it, and even then they made a mistake, how much more? The harmony, the ecosystem of the Amazon of the Sahara Desert, the sustained life of the Australian outback. Every snowflake, every water drop, every grain of sand, every breath of air has my fingerprints on it. The fingerprints of my eternal power and divine nature. 
you have no excuse. It's why, have a think about this with me. It's why even though, you know, if all the libraries of the world were to write about God, it could not contain all there is to say about God. God is such a complex being. But yet, you teach a child about God. Our children in our kids' church, our creche, teach them about God, and they are able to conceptualize God. It resonates. It makes sense. It's why in Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. So even when adults, with all our intellect, we deny God, children will praise him. And so if you, amongst us, you're here, you're exploring, you're thinking, and many of you are already believers. But if you do not believe in God, ask yourself, what happened? Because I suspect for many of us, when we were young, we did. And it's not as though we grew older and we became more intelligent, so we denied God. It was always a matter of the heart. Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid that it may be true. But if you think about it, it takes far more faith to not believe in God than to believe in God. And to say that there is no God, it's in fact not morally neutral. It's a matter of the heart. It's rebellion. It's usurping God. It's replacing God, dethroning God and placing something else in place of God. It's, in fact, wickedness. It's evilness. It's suppressing the truth about God. Even though we know God, we don't glorify Him nor thank Him. English minister Dick Lucas, he puts it nicely. He said, Foolishness is not an intellectual deficiency, but a moral deficiency. And foolishness will be seen in its fruits, which is described here in Psalm 14. And so have a look at the next part of verse 1. Verse 1b, they are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. And so what this is saying is, is brutally honest. It's hard to hear. What this is saying is that the problem of the world, the big problem of the world, stems from a denial, a rejection, a rebellion against God. You muck up the vertical relationship and you stuff up all the horizontal ones. It's why in the scriptures we hear quite often, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of, the wis of wisdom? It's because if I fear God, that is, I acknowledge God, I revere God, I worship God, I've learned the first thing about being human. That is, God is God, I'm not, I'm his creature. And so if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, therefore, the dismissal of God is the beginning of folly. Have no relationship with God and the rotten fruits will show. Now, in case we're tempted to think, well, that's not me. You know, I'm fine. But look at verse 2. The brutal truth from God's perspective. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men. He's talking about all people. There's no us and them. It's all. He looks down on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And what does God find? Well, instead of seeking God, just like what G.K. Chesterton once said, he said, when men stop believing in God, 
They don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And so I can never be a neutral atheist because I've replaced God with something else. And that is what God says here is folly. It's wickedness. I have displaced God. And so the Apostle Paul, again, very helpful in how he expounded this in Romans 1. He said, Although they claim to be wise, everyone claims to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. And in verse 25, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And that's what we see around the world, isn't it? It's why there are thousands of different religions. I mean, I rather bow down, people say. I rather bow down to a wooden cow, to a stone statue, to human intellect, to the universities, to science, to my ambitions, to my desires. It's all a lie. It's hoping to find in those things happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, but it won't work. You see, idols make promises they can never deliver. Success will enslave me to wanting more, but it will leave me empty. Failures will crush me, and failures, failures will never forgive me. I mean, that's folly. And God's honest truth is here, verse 3. All have turned aside. All. Not just some, but all. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, the important doctrine we're learning here is the doctrine of human depravity. All people, rich, poor, educated, not, have, have not, sin makes us all equals. Now, some of us might find this really hard to accept. But just consider, looking back on human history, what has taken place in society when God has been displaced and replaced. Remember the great famous philosopher Nietzsche? He famously once said, God is dead in the 19th century. God is dead. We can live without God. We can create our own meaning. We don't need rules from Him. We make it ourselves. And what he said, God is dead, was played out in the 20th century. And what did we see in the 20th century? It was the bloodiest century there ever was in the history of humanity. The desire to be free from God produced Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, over 100 million killed. Now come closer to today. Don't we still see Psalm 14 at play? Look at the world, read the news. Isn't that what we see? And what about in Australia? Is it any better? What do you think? What do you think? The Western world. We've dehumanized the unborn babies so that you can do whatever you want with them in the name of choice. We've legitimized the murder of the weak, the sick, the vulnerable, the elderly, assisted suicide in the name of compassion. We've become so confused about marriage, gender, what it means to be human, all in the name of progress. That is what has taken place when we have turned our backs on God. 
they have altogether become corrupt, we're told. But it's not just out there. That's what we need to be careful of. It's not like we've got the moral high ground here. The fault line between good and evil cuts across not cultures, not nations, not left and right or political parties. It cuts across every human heart, yours and mine included. It's why a Scottish minister in the 1800s, Robert Murray McShane, he, he wisely said, the seed of every sin, the seed of every sin, adultery, greed, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. I could potentially sin in just the very same way as anyone else, given the opportunity, the temptation, the situation, the pressure. It's often why, you know, you hear scandals of the rich and famous and powerful. Why? Well, why do we hear a lot of scandals amongst them, infidelity, drugs? Is it because they're more evil than us? Not at all. It's the opportunity. It's the temptation. It's the pressure. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. I mean, this passage is confronting, but it's the brutal truth. And it's quite depressing, isn't it? I mean, it's the honest truth. And it was, in fact, true for all the heroes of the Bible. They were all flawed. Abraham was a coward. He betrayed his wife. Moses was presumptuous. He, he, he struck the rock. David, adulterer, murderer. Peter, he was impulsive. Paul killed Christians for a living. I mean, this is the only religion that is so scathing and brutally honest in pointing out the flaws of its leaders. And if the heroes of the Bible were like that, I'm no better. Now, at the moment, we're probably bracing, when's the good news going to come? Not yet. It's a bit more bad news. You see, the problem with fools is that they do not know that they are fools. Those who deny God do not know that they are fools. Stubbornly proud instead, unwilling to learn, and compounding evil upon evil. It gets worse and worse and worse. Look at verse 4. Will evildoers ever learn? Those who devour my people. I mean, you look at history, look at the people of God in, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in, in church history. God's people have been devoured during the Roman Empire. Hasn't stopped. The Cultural Revolution in China, the Soviet Union, today, Iran, North Korea. As men, we read verse 4, as men eat bread and do not call on the Lord. Fools do not know that they are fools. They never learn. C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. You understand sleep when you are awake, not when you are sleeping. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? My principal at Bible College, John Woodhouse, he said this. People who do not take God seriously find it very difficult to see the seriousness of not taking God seriously. To refuse to take God seriously is the ultimate stupidity. But once you have committed it, it is inevitable 
effects, its inevitable effects, is to blind you to its idiocy. Our sinfulness gets in the way of seeing our sinfulness. The more you sin, the less you see it. But yet, notice now, somehow, like it or not, the fools, they in fact recognize God. There's a dread of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. There they are. Who? The fool. Overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. Now that's interesting. Now we hear of someone good. We read on. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. And so what are we seeing here? Or somehow it's trying to prick deep down what's happening in the heart of the fool. Though you say there is no God, in quiet moments, in moments of despair, in the face of death, deep in their hearts, they cannot escape that sense that there must be more. There is this moral universe, and I'm in trouble. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he he speaks of our age as haunted by the divine. We don't really know God, but we're haunted by the divine and there is this dread. Everyone who lives as though there is no God, deep down, know that there is. And there's that terrifying uncertainty for all those who say there is no God. But yet here in that same passage, we see there's a glimmer of hope. Now we see some good news. We're now actually reading of not the fool, but the righteous. Now, who are they? Who are the righteous? Because we want to be amongst the righteous. Well, it can't be those who are morally good because we've already been told there is no one good. No one who seeks God all have turned away. And so who are they? Well, it's not that they have sought God out of their own powers, but somehow God has sought them and found them. And they've come into a relationship with God. Just like how God spoke to Noah, it was God's initiative. Just like how God came and found Abraham, it was God's initiative. Just like how God appeared to Moses, it was God's initiative. And it's just like how we all believe, it was all God's initiative. God found us, just like the shepherd who went out for the lost sheep and left the 99 behind. And what happens? Well, the righteous, the the wise, they don't remain in their folly. They don't avoid the evidence. They don't deny God, dismiss God. And unlike the fool, they are wise. They say, there is a God. That's the righteous. There is a God, and he is my God. And that's the hope in our final verse. We're almost there. Verse 7. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. If there is to be any hope in this broken, messy, corrupt world, filled with wickedness, if there is to be any hope, it's a hope that cannot come from within, from what we do as people. But it comes from above, from Zion, from where God is, from the temple, from where sacrifices were made to deal with the corruption of this world. It's from God himself. And so what we see at the end here is that we start off with the fool who dismisses God and says there is no God. We end up with the righteous, the wise who says there is a God. He has found me. There is a God and he's my God. And so my question to you this morning is quite easy. Two categories of people. The wise and the fool. In which category do you fit? 
You see, the brutal truth is that we are all, by default, in the foolish category. We are born sinful. And the picture that's painted in this passage is a, a bleak picture of humanity. It's like a big black cloth that, that, that you can't see anything else. It's completely dark. But that is necessary so that we can see now the brilliance when the diamond drops. And the diamond is this. Because what has God done when he looked upon us and saw there is weakness and corruption all over? Well, when we look to Zion, when we look to Jerusalem, when we read the scriptures, when we look back to the cross, what do we see? Well, what we see there at the cross was the extreme example of the wickedness and corruption of humanity. Because what do we see? Or well, Robert Murray McShane again, he said, if the breast of God were within the reach of men, it would be stabbed a million, a million times in one moment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth to show us, you can see that God is real, not just from creation, but I am here. There is a God. And what do we do? What did humanity do? We stabbed him. We stabbed him. Now, that, that picture of us being there, it's, it's beautifully captured in this old song from, I think, the 80s, Ray Bolt, the Emma, the hammer. Do you know this one? And I cried, who nailed him there? This child of peace and mercy, who nailed him there? Come and face me like a man. Who nailed him there? And the crowd began to mock me, and I cried, oh, my God, I do not understand then I turned and saw the hammer in my hand. It's a beautiful picture saying that we're just as guilty. We're just as guilty as those there. You see, at the cross, we see the extent of humanity's weakness, humanity's corruption. I'm holding the hammer. It was my sins that sent Jesus to the cross. And it was his blood that was shed for me. But here comes the brilliance, the beauty, the glory of Jesus. Yet, even so, he loved me still. He did not get off the cross. He stayed on the cross and died for me. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of Jesus. See, the question is, do you know that? Do you know that? Yesterday, I had the wonderful privilege of sharing the gospel with one of our members uh, to a friend. And, and the question to her is, do you really believe that? There's a difference between believe and believe. Believe that, believe in. I mean, her life, she shared it, it was quite dark, a bit like that black cloth, living perhaps like a practical atheist. But then she came to see that God is real. Her situation brought her to her knees to see that God is real. And then we came to explain the cross. You're guilty enough. You're so guilty enough for Jesus to die for you. That's what it costs. But you love so much that Jesus would die for you. And in that moment, as we were sharing the gospel with her, it was beautiful because she finally understood. Tears filled her eyes. She saw her guilt. Yet joy filled her heart because she saw her forgiveness. No longer a fool, but wise. 
I see God and he's mine. And so my question to you again, are you amongst the wise or the fool? The wise would see that we are far more evil than we ever dare believe, but far more loved than we could ever imagine. So remain a fool or become wise. Well, my prayer is that we're all amongst the wise, not because of our strength, but God's kindness and grace. And we amongst the wise say, there is a God, and he's my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful kindness, your brilliant mercy that looking upon us, such broken and depraved, in our hearts, but yet in your Son, Jesus, you will show us grace and mercy. Help us, Lord, to live a life not as practical atheists, but as those who fear the Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.